This time we're going to continue our time of worship with the reading of God's Word. If you could turn in your Bibles or follow along on the screen, we're, on, we're in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 21. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings, and with that you did reign, so that we might share that rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are, you, we are weak, you are, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we, but we in disrepute, disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we, in, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved son, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? popular as some of his other sayings, but it's still easy to understand. But when Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would be first, 
he must be last of all and must be a servant to all. I'm not sure I get that one. I understand what it means, but I'm just not sure if I accept it as true. I mean, everything that I've experienced in life directly contradicts that saying. In my experience, the first are first, and the last, well, they're last. I mean, imagine with me. Imagine that this year the Cubs won the World Series, and after they won, the commissioner of baseball came to them and said, well, listen, the first are first, I'm sorry, the first are last, and the last are first, so we decided to take your trophy, drive down south, and handed it to the White Sox. It wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, would it? It goes against everything that we believe. Or take this one by Jesus. If anyone is to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Who would ever want to do that? Who would ever want to consider him or herself as nothing and take on the humiliated state of a servant? Listen, I understand that Jesus is our Lord and we ought to obey his every word, but whenever I hear these particular words, I'm not so sure I want to obey them. I want to be a Christian. I want to believe in Jesus for my salvation. I want to belong to the community of of, of God, the church. But is it really necessary to follow him to the cross? See, the cross is a symbol of humiliation. It is a symbol of weakness. And we, we live in a culture of power and status. We want to be seen as strong, as successful, as influential. I want to take pride in all that I am and all that I do. You know what happens when pride takes root among the members of God's church? The church begins to divide. Groups begin to form around status. How long have you been a member? What responsibilities do you have in the church? How old are you? What kind of work do you do? What kind of money do you make? And each group looks down at another, sticking their noses in the sky as they sit comfortably on pillows of accolades and boasts. Now, depending on your vantage point, you might be thinking to yourself, you've just described our church. We're divided into cliques and we sit in judgment of one another rather than come together in service for one another. Or maybe you're more optimistic than some. Maybe you're thinking, thank God that doesn't describe our church. But regardless of your perspective, I think there is a question that we all must ask this morning. Is our church shaped by pride or by the cross? I think we would all hope that it is the cross, but let me just tell you that being shaped by the cross as a church is counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. You see, we have a natural tendency toward pride, and what the message of the cross calls us to do isn't always pleasant or comfortable. It is hard. It goes against much of what our culture, inside and outside the church, values. But here is what we must understand. In a cross-shaped church, up is down, and those with little are those with plenty. Now, in order to understand this truth well, I want to step into a conversation recorded in Scripture between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church. We've been listening to Paul speak to the church for several weeks, and I want to take another listen. 
Because as we lean in to hear his words, we begin to realize that this conversation could just as well been spoken to you and I. And so would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. When you meet me there, please follow along as I read from the scriptures. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of students that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you would reign, so that we might share that rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? In this conversation about a cross-shaped church, we first hear this. Leaders are servants of God. Those who exercise leadership in church will be judged by God for their faithfulness. That's what it says in verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, stewards of Christ, stewards, I'm sorry, servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. It said it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. What is a reasonable expectation for leaders? 
In a culture that promotes self-made power brokers and charismatic celebrities, it is a bit unexpected to hear Paul say, this is how you ought to consider us as servants of Christ Jesus. According to Paul, servants are not rulers. Servants are not detached dictators. Servants serve the church. Imagine the confusion. The Corinthian church had chosen sides according to their favorite leaders. They argued Paul is better than Cephas. Apollos is better than Paul. Yet Paul corrects them by adjusting their vision on leadership. This is how you ought to view us. Apollos, Paul, Cephas, and anyone who comes after us is a servant of Christ. To us belongs the lowly rank of servants. To Christ belongs the position of Lord. Yet that's not low enough for Paul. Not only should we regard leaders of, of Christ's church as servants, we should also regard them as stewards of the mysteries of God. You know, today we hear that term, stewards, and none of us flinch. The metaphor and the sharp insult that was intended by this word is pretty much lost to us. But listen to what Paul says about himself and those who serve the church. We are to be regarded as slaves. Slaves? You mean to tell me that ministers of the church, pastors, elders, deacons, preachers, mosaic shepherds, are slaves? Paul says, yes. We are slaves of God, commissioned to work in his house. That's what the word means. A steward was a slave given the job of maintaining and looking after the house of his or her master. You know, a few years ago, I was working for a man who owned a very expensive Mercedes SUV. After about a year or two of working with him, he uh, trusted me enough to hand me the keys to the car every once in a while. If I needed to drive to an off-site meeting or needed to attend to a personal matter, he would often hand me the keys to the Mercedes. Now, this was a strange thrill to drive a car that was probably worth more than a year of my salary. On the one hand, I felt a weird sense of power knowing that I was behind the wheel of such an expensive car. Yet I was still fully aware that the car did not belong to me. It was the most careful I had ever been behind the wheel, dreading the thought of telling my boss that I had damaged his car. If you are a minister in the household of God, remember that you have been entrusted with something that does not belong to you. God has handed you the keys to his church. He has called you and placed you here to do this work, but it is his work. And to what work has the leader been commissioned? Well, he says that in the next, in, in, in verse 2, where he says, it's verse 2 or verse 1, where he says that you are commissioned to the work of proclaiming the mysteries of God, stewards of the mysteries of God. That is the work of the gospel. God's plan of salvation that has now been revealed in Jesus Christ, leaders, ministers, and God's trust. Uh, God's church are entrusted with the task of making God's work known in Christ. And this work is made known, it is testified, it is proclaimed through our speech and our actions. And to this task, ministers 
must be trustworthy. It must be faithful. But Paul is not speaking to individuals training to become ministers of the church. He is speaking to a community that had an ill view of leadership in the church. You see, the Corinthian church had such a high view of themselves that they had begun to judge their ministers, comparing one to another, making judgments about which one was more fit to do the work. I think Paul's a better minister. No, I think Apollos is better. Hearing these conversations echo throughout the church, Paul sits them back in their place. And he says to them, it couldn't matter less whether you or any human court judges me. Whether your evaluation of my ministry is positive or negative, it is of little consequence. Even I am not fit for evaluating my own ministry. Why? Is Paul trying to escape examination? Is he a slick-talking pastor avoiding accountability? Not at all. Their judgment means little because it is the Lord who judges him. God will be the one to examine his life and his ministry. And unlike any human judge, there is no hiding from God. And when he comes, he will bring to light all things hidden and all things that are in the heart. To what end do we measure our leaders and ministers in the church? To what standard do you and I hold them? Is it faithfulness to the gospel? Or is it something else? Is it their talent, their charisma, the number of followers they gather around them? The scriptures remind us of at least two important truths here. First, leaders are to be faithful to the gospel, not to our own ideals of what a minister is supposed to look like. Ministers of the church do not report to you and I. They report to God. They are not bound by our expectations or our vision for the church. Yes, they are to be faithful. They are to care for God's church well, but it is not God, but it is God, not you and I, who will determine whether a minister is faithful. And that brings me to a second truth. Leaders are accountable to God, the Lord of this church. If you are a minister of God, or if you are training up to become a minister of God, you ought to listen to these scriptures well. God is our judge. It is to his end that we minister, not to our own. And that can serve both as an encouragement as well as a warning. Because as you are receiving judgment from others, you, you should stand with Paul that says, God ultimately will be the one to reveal all intentions. Even as the people malign me or ridicule me, God is the one who will see things to the end. See, in a cross-shaped church, ministers are not unfit rulers, but faithful servants of God. And so the conversation must continue. Not only did the church have an unacceptable view of ministers, they also had an unacceptable view of themselves. Look at what he says here. In other words, in their eyes, they were high and rich, but the apostles were low and poor. They had much to boast in, yet their examples in the faith, the apostles, considered themselves as least of all men. Look at verses 6 through 11. Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings, and oh, that you would reign. So 
that we might share the role with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul tells the church, I have been talking about Apollos and I so that you can understand the things of God. If you were to understand the things I am writing to you, you would see that there is no reason to be puffed up, to be swollen with pride. And notice what the result of their pride is. They were, they were against one another. Their pride resulted in division. Still, it is a bit unexpected that the church would have any reason to boast. Think about it. What makes you any different than the person sitting next to you? Is it your talents? Your spiritual gifts? Is it the amount of money you have in your bank account? Is it the amount of knowledge you have about God? Well, where did you get any of those things? Did you not receive it from God? And is not God the same giver of all good things to you as he is to the brother or sister sitting next to you? Then on what grounds can you and I be prideful? And on what grounds can you or I set ourselves against one another in the church? Yet that's what happened in the church here in Corinth. They had become a church shaped by their pride rather than the cross. This had become clear by their high view of themselves. Beginning in verse 8, Paul makes a stark contrast between their perception of themselves and their experience and the experience of the apostles. But if we're going to hear what Paul is saying, we have to understand that Paul is being sarcastic. When he says, you have become rich, you have become kings, he says so ironically. You think of yourselves as kings. You have so much to be proud of. You are so rich. But notice what he says at the end of verse 8. But oh, that you would reign. Then you would truly experience victory in Christ. If you did, we would share in your victory. We would stand with you in the power of God. But instead, you choose to boast in your own strength rather than boast in what you have in Christ. And all the while you boast, he says, we, those who have been used by God, have a drastically different experience. He says God has put us on display, not as polished, beautiful objects, but as men who carry a sentence of death. We suffer for God's sake. God has made us fools for Christ. God has made us weak, yet you consider yourself strong and wise. You receive honor while we receive shame. Now, what does Paul mean here? Well, there are two things to help us understand this. First of all, we have to remember that the Christians here in Corinth thought less of Paul because he was often suffering. To suffer, to be poor, to be rejected by society was to be shamed. It was a social status that should have been avoided at all costs. 
the church here in Corinth thought of themselves as somehow being more worthy of a greater honor than Paul because he had experienced all of those things and they had not. And that brings us to the second point that we have to understand in that in experiencing these things, in explaining that this is what he has experienced, Paul is identifying himself with the way of the cross. You see, Jesus suffered. Jesus was rejected. And Jesus was handed over to death for our sake. And Jesus also commanded us to follow his example. It was Jesus who taught us to bless when we were cursed. It was Jesus who taught us to give up our own rights and our own desires for the sake of the church. It is this life of humility and suffering that demonstrates the power of God in Christ. The apostles were made as nothing before men, and in doing so, pointed to the glory of God in Christ. Church filled with members who boast in their own power, accomplishments, and status before others is a church filled with make-believe kings. It is a church filled with men and women propped up on shaky thrones that will not last. But a church filled with members that follow Christ's example of humility and sacrifice gives glory to the Lord, the one true King. If I had to place myself on one side of the conversation between Paul and the church, I would probably place myself among the Corinthians. You see, I don't believe that you and I hear these words by Paul and say, Yes, Paul, I will praise God for my weakness and my suffering so that I may boast in nothing except Christ crucified. So when Paul instructs the church in the remaining part of our passage, I hear Paul speaking directly to you and I. And Paul says this to us. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Leave behind the way of pride and arrogance and imitate the way of the Lord. This is what he's saying here. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look with me at verses 14 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, to my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, with love, and a spirit of gentleness? Paul now is instructing us here in two ways as he instructs the church. He says, of course, first, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is, I am a father to you all. That's what he says to the church. I was an instrument of God to raise you up in the faith so that as you came to faith, it is as if I am a father in the Lord to you. I instructed you. I raised you up in truth. I raised you up in the truth of the gospel. And so when I say these things, when I say these things harshly to you, I do not say them for your shame, but for your development, for your growth. Because you are like my children, he says. He says, because I am a father to you, 
Imitate. Some of you fathers know what that is like. You are raising your children up. You see your children imitating you and you see their mannerisms and and what they do and, and you see this as a proud moment for yourself as a father. Maybe sometimes you don't, but generally speaking, you are trying to raise up your children in the Lord. Paul says he is doing the same thing for the church. So he says, imitate me. I do not come to you harshly, but I want you to imitate me as I imitate the way of the cross. But there's a second problem here, which is the problem that has plagued this church. See, there is pride in the church. There are those who are arrogant in the church, and they've been saying these things contrary to what Paul has taught them, and they have said to themselves, Paul isn't coming back. Paul's not fit for ministry here, and so we can do whatever we want. We can continue to proclaim our boasting. And Paul says some of those arrogant people remain in the church, and they say to you that I will not be coming back, but I will. And like a father who is stern with his children, he is reminding the church that when he comes, he will not come with a gentle word. Because those arrogant people have no place in the church of God, and they must God. He says, we'll see who's more powerful. They boast in their strength. They boast in their power. We'll see who's really powerful because I come with the power of the kingdom of God. That's a harsh word for us. See, Paul isn't treating us, is encouraging us to imitate him as he imitates Christ. But we refuse to do so. If we do not become a church that is shaped by the cross... There's no place for us here. That can be hard to hear. That is why Paul says at the end, What do you wish? Should I come to you with a rod? Should I come to you with discipline? Or should I come to you in love with a spirit of gentleness? I believe that the response from the church will determine what Paul's response to them will be. Will it be with a rod to correct them because they continue in their pride and their arrogance? Or will it be loving, gentle response because they are striving to reflect the cross of Christ. Now, many of us hearing these things recognize that we sometimes are guilty of pride. We sometimes are guilty of dividing the church as a result of that. But here we're called to model our lives, model our response in the church the way that Christ himself was. We imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. So I want to ask you again the question that we began with. Is our church shaped by pride or the cross? You see, if it is shaped by the cross, then we will be controlled by certain values. We will recognize that leaders and ministers in the church are faithful servants of God. They are responsible to and will be held accountable by God, not our, our, our idealistic expectations. Second, we acknowledge that as a cross-shaped church, we will be marked by humility and service to one another, not by pride and division. We have been left an example here to imitate so that as we follow Christ and his victory in the cross, we might begin to demonstrate humility and self-sacrifice and service to one another. And yet this is counterintuitive. It isn't what we are prone to do. To deny oneself and view ourselves as nothing 
so that we can gain everything in Christ is like speaking a completely different language. But this is now our language, church. And even if it takes some time to gain the ability to speak well, this is our goal. This is what we are striving for, to be a church shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. Because we are a community of the crucified Lord. So we have to be shaped by his cross. In a cross-shaped church, up is down. Those who are leaders, those who are placed in a position of authority are servants working in the house of the master. And those of us who think we have much to be prideful of, who are shamed by our weakness and by, and, and by what we do not have, discover that it is here that we find victory in the cross. We find victory in Christ. We are able to boast in the power of God. That is to say that in a cross-shaped church, up is down. And those with little are actually those with plenty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today.